0: You're listening to the Wild Women Who Write podcast. Kathy Nichols, Kim Conry, Elizabeth Jones, and Gabby Anderson.
1: Tonight, Wild Women Who Write Take Flight is very happy to welcome Susan Crawford, author of the international best-selling novel, The Pocket Wife. And Susan grew up in Miami, Florida. She spent her childhood summers reading mysteries in a hammock strung between two banyan trees, which sounds absolutely like the most wonderful thing right now. She also collected lizards, baby snakes, skunks, not snakes, sorry, and other exotic creatures which she probably didn't find those exotic creatures when she moved to New York City and then later Boston before she settled in Atlanta, where she raised three amazing daughters and has taken part in teaching in various adult education settings. Susan is a member of the Atlanta Writers Club and the Village Writers Group. She is now a full-time author. She lives in Atlanta with her husband and a trio of rescue cats, where she enjoys reading books, writing books, rainy days, and spending time with the people she loves. The Pocket Wife is Susan's debut novel. Booklist describes it as a gripping, character-driven mystery. Her second novel, The Other Widow, is another suspense novel. And Jackie K. Cooper of the Huffington Post said, Susan gets better with every book she produces. And we're really glad to have you with us here tonight, Susan. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I I know in your novel, The Pocket Wife, the main character suffers from bipolar disease. It's controllable with medication, but taking the meds makes it impossible for her to concentrate. And since she's the suspect in a murder, she really needs to think straight to prove her innocence or worse, her guilt. Can you tell us what you know about bipolar disease and why you chose to create a
2: character with this mental issue? Yes, I have a background in psychology. I initially started out to be a counselor and got sidetracked, became a teacher. But I have quite a background educationally in psychology and sadly family members who are bipolar. So I have seen this disorder up close. I think the, the impetus was, well, there were two things maybe this had to do with growing up Catholic, I don't know, but I thought, wouldn't it be horrible if you didn't know if you'd done something terrible and you just had the feeling you might have, but you didn't know. That that was in the back of my mind. And then at the same time, I was reading all these articles. Of, you know, it seemed like everything that, every violent crime that came up, they, they were sort of putting it off on a person who was bipolar. It, it just seemed to me. But actually, people with mental illnesses or aberrations are far, far, far more likely to be the victims of crime than the victimizer. And then I was in a critique group that had turned into all men and me somehow. And, and they were always complaining that I had no action and why are your, your characters don't do anything but walk around and drink tea and sleep with people and, you know, let's have some action. So I... I said, "Well, I'm just going to start my next book with the dead body, and that'll make you happy." And I had no idea. I didn't write in that genre. I didn't read in that genre except my Nancy Drew books when I was a kid. I, I did start out with the dead body, and uh, the woman is bipolar. Not the dead, not the dead body, but uh, the neighbor. She, the bipolar woman, wakes up on her couch in the first scene, and she's drunk way too much and passed out and she wakes up to the sound of an ambulance arriving at the home of her neighbor where she has just been visiting and so she's the last person to have seen the neighbor alive as far as anybody knows and they did argue but she can't remember anything else now what you said about the medication it doesn't necessarily. I mean, they they've made so many strides with medication, with bipolar. Now people can take it and they feel quite normal. I think it was that was not so true when lithium was the main, or maybe the only drug. I think that made people feel sluggish. But she is at the right at the beginning of a manic episode, because her son has just left for college and her husband's turning into a real jerk. So she's kind of at that point anyway and she thinks right at the beginning of a manic episode people feel this great rush of energy and they're able to just get so much accomplished and then it it gets more and more frenzied and then they stop sleeping and then eventually it turns into psychosis and of course there are variations on that so she's right at that point where she has a lot of energy and she thinks if i take my medication i'm not going to have this energy i really need the energy right now and she probably isn't thinking terribly clearly when she makes this decision anyway but but that's why she decides to stay off her meds that's interesting and i feel like from reading
1: the book i got a lot of insights into the urgency that people who have bipolar feel during those transitional phases when they know something's coming on and it's really hard to to decide what to do about that. And when you're a murder suspect, it makes it even harder. And I was thinking, I forgot about one of my books. All of the wild women who are here tonight have characters that have some sort of neurodivergent situation. I forgot about my uncle character of course that's why i forgot the book is not out yet but i have i have a character who is a narcoleptic he happens to also be gay and um he's not a crossdresser now he wasn't really a crossdresser he was like a, a performer and so he wore lovely costumes but he's uh, suspected of a murder and because he's narcoleptic and he has there are three I guess you could call symptoms common symptoms of narcolepsy. He has all three of them. One is, of course, just falling asleep in inopportune times. And I remember going to the lawyer's office about my father's estate, and I'm sitting there, and my uncle has gone with me to help me. And he just plants his face on the table and has a little nap. And the other attorneys are looking at me, and I'm like, he'll be back in a minute. You know, it was totally normal to me. So, I, that's, uh, that's funny that I forgot about it, but it is very difficult because when he was growing up, people just thought he was lazy or drunk. And he was really neither of times of his episodes. But I also wrote a book called The Unreliables and in it, my main character is struggling with devastating grief over the death of her husband. And she goes to a medical professional who actually is not what he's supposed to be and the medication he's giving her causes her to have more than just the grief. She has some mildly psychotic uh, episodes. She sees things, but the thing she sees, she's a writer and she actually sees one of her characters. So I wasn't so sure that would make her seem crazy because it didn't seem to me if you're talking to your characters. And I don't really see mine, but I I could see what they would look like, you know, because I made them. So I didn't think it was that crazy, but one of the reviews, it was in uh, the Strand Magazine. It was great. I got nominated or something for one of the best mysteries of 2023, but it was a small publication. And one of the reviewers said that I explored the line between sanity and insanity, which kind of scared me because I didn't see anything insane at all about talking to your characters, interacting with your characters. And I just thought, well, that person wasn't a writer. He just doesn't get it. So we all do have some of these. I don't, uh, I don't really want to say, well, neurodivergent, I think is the best way to say it. People who don't necessarily see things the way or operate the same way that other people do. And Gabby Uh, it was married to a therapist who we had on the show. And we had him on the show because we wanted to make sure that if we created mental health people, that we didn't do something really egregious with them. Now, mine is bad, but it's okay because he's not really, he's faking it. He's not really a mental health person. So Andy was great. And he did a whole podcast talking to us about, you know, some of the things that might happen in therapy, some of the things that probably would never happen and the ethical ways that therapists would handle that so that was a really great podcast and a great subject and i wanted to ask gabby if she thinks that maybe one of the reasons her main character in south of happily is in therapy she's a charming character and we would all like to go and have a drink with her i'm not sure we would all turn our problems over to her and say give us some suggestions for solving them but she has this really funny and almost poignant relationship with a therapist. Do you think being married to a therapist influenced you or was it there already?
0: It completely influenced me and it was part of the reason being married to a therapist and having a daughter who is also a therapist and also working in behavioral health since about 2012 I felt that I needed to represent therapy in a way that was different than the stereotypical bad shrink the way that there's a bad stepfather and there is a bad shrink. I really wanted to demonstrate what a good therapeutic relationship could look like and that it doesn't have to be boring and then it doesn't have to be like Dr. Fraser Crane was sitting there and that it could be very personal and that it could really dig down and get into some issues and also have some laughs and also show that the therapist is a human being who has feelings and thoughts that are not always perfect and you know the way that we think about them stereotypically so ap- absolutely at 100% had something to do with that and i'm right when you said that you ran things by Andy I did. Uh, As you were writing. I did, especially when every time Katie would go see Dr. Jonas, I would make him read it and I would say, I don't need this to be perfectly in the lines. I don't want it to stop anybody and I especially don't want to stop anybody who's in the field to say, oh, that would never happen. I knew that it was, that I could go a little bit outside of the lines, but I absolutely did run them by him and say, would this happen? Does this happen? Can it happen this way? and Even more importantly, what would you say when a when a client comes to you and says sentence A, what would your response be to that? And he was really great about helping me with that. He's definitely a good therapist. I have not He's a great therapist. I I was gonna say I've not had
1: therapy with him. I wish I could, but he knows too much about me, so it's not gonna happen. Yeah. But he certainly is a excellent listener. Well, and Susan, I was kind of interested because your protagonist in The Pocket Wife, she's she ha, she's been in therapy. I can't re, quite remember. She doesn't really talk about being in therapy, does she?
2: No, I, no, she doesn't really. Well, it's mentioned her first episode, which is often the case, was when she was in college and how she was writing more and more and she was just everything that came to her she thought was coming through god and she was communicating and and just writing 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 and then it all sort of fell apart and she throws her novel out the window of her apartment on on the lower east side and goes to and, and her boyfriend takes her to Bellevue and then she's diagnosed and put on lithium and uh, so th- that's, and that was 20 years before the book opens. So that that's covered briefly and that she's had some episodes in the last years and her husband gets her to the doctor and she she does have a psychiatrist that she goes to see in the city. And, and everybody's, as she's getting more and more bizarre, the son and the husband are suggesting, why don't you go see Dr. Singh? <laughs> have you made that appointment yet? So it's, but I don't, I don't show them therapy session well, yeah, well you, I, she doesn't have one she's just talking about going but she doesn't and and
1: you have so much going on that i don't know that you have space for that no um, yeah,
2: but no i, I tried to sh- what i was trying to do in the book was show bipolar disorder from the perspective of the person suffering from it instead of looking in at her i wanted her to be looking out in that sort of fragmented world that she was seeing because I think you do
1: such a good job of that. I remember, and, and I'm going to be complimentary here when I say Faulkner's one of my very favorite authors. Your writing is not like Faulkner, which is not to say you're not one of my favorite authors, but I don't want people to think, oh my gosh, Faulkner? I'm not picking that book up because he goes for like page after page after page with no punctuation and no paragraphs and whatever. But in his book, The Sound and the Fury, he does this really cool thing of Benji is, has, we, I'm not quite sure what the mental illness is, but he has some sort of problem. And this was written like in the fifties. So there would have been no differentiation between, he was very slow, wasn't he? He he's had slow and, balance. and, and so for some reason they're afraid of him, but possibly because he's big and a little lumbering. So, but I felt like he did such a brilliant job of helping me get into the mind and i haven't read i it's been a very long time since i read it but i felt the same way with your portrayal of the bipolar
2: situation thank you that is quite a compliment and and i have to say while i was writing it i got a little weirder (laughs) than usual and and it it, did yeah it was kind of freaking me out it's hard yeah and and kim
1: did something i think is really interesting um in her book Stealing Aries, oh, for which she won George Author of the Year in uh, sci-fi, oh no, it just it was romance. romance, but but it's sci-fi romance. So, And her main character has a language processing issue. So tell us a little about that, Kim, and why you chose to include it and how you think it contributed to who she was. Harlow
3: has a neurological processing disorder called Mixed Expressive Receptive Speech and Language Disorder or MERLED. And what this is, is when language comes into the brain, it takes the brain longer to process it. And so that's the receptive part of it. And when the person goes to answer, the expressive part of it is it takes them longer to answer you and longer for the brain to catch up and figure out how to answer you. And so the reason I wanted to bring this this into the book was someone very close to me has this. And what's so frustrating about this is no one even knew what this was until two or three decades ago. So prior to that, you know, teachers just thought, well, they're just not paying attention. Parents thought, they're just not paying attention to me. They're daydreaming. And these were kids who got in trouble. Or if, if their brain didn't figure out how to get over, around, or through this by the time they were adults, perhaps it was hard for them to hold down a job or function in society. And it clings to you to varying degrees as you age. Um, as you get older, your brain may figure out how to work around it, and there may be very few remnants of it by the time you're an adult, or depending on how severe it is, it may cling to you well for the rest of your life. And it's also something you can get, you may be born with it, like the individual in my family, or you could get it from a stroke. You could get it from a car accident, like a blow to the head. And um, it's more prevalent than people think, And so what troubled me so much is that people might look at these individuals and think they're not listening to me and be angry at them. And I wanted to bring awareness to that because you can't, when people hear speech or language disorder, they think, oh, and this is not anyone's fault, but this is what they tend to think. They think, oh, well, They must mispronounce their word, like they say wabbit instead of rabbit. Like, because we're so used to hearing, we know about people who stutter. We know about people who have articulation disorders. We know about speech disorders. We know about a lisp. We know what these things are. But when someone has merled, receptive expressive disorder, you don't always hear it in their voice. It's in their head. You can't see it. You know, it just may take them longer to answer you or you think they're not paying attention to you and it's it's sad because we may accuse these people of not listening to us and so that can create just a really tough situation for that that individual and I'm so glad now that that teachers you know school systems know what this is now oh thank goodness and so I wanted to give Harlow this disorder my female protagonist and even though as she's gotten older her brain has figured out a way around it Um, And it doesn't really affect her unless she's stressed out. And that's actually very common with people who've had speech and language disorders as a child, even if their brain has learned to compensate for it. And this is also true with apraxia of speech, which a lot of kids are born with. Even if their brain has learned a way around it, you know, and the neurons have learned to go off in different directions and compensate for it. As an adult, a legacy of that may be that when they're stressed out or exhausted, they may start slurring their words or dropping words or not finding the right word when they're trying to speak. In fact, Ronda Rousey has a praxia of speech, the female wrestler. And sometimes her when she's giving a an interview, sometimes she'll slow down and, and articulate slower, articulate better. In fact, a speech of the language pathologist pointed that out to me. They said, oh, watch her sometimes if she's giving an interview. Sometimes she'll slow down and talk slower and articulate more. But I wanted to give Harlow this speech and language disorder to call attention to it for one thing, but also to create a picture of how this would affect someone as an adult. You know, how does how does that shape a person? I'm very interested in how what we experience when we're younger, how it molds and shapes us, and what it creates in us as we grow and and, and the trajectory what kind of adult do we become because of it and what would that do to her and so growing up in a colony on the mars colony that had been forsaken by the earth coalition and not being able to articulate her needs and 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 what she wanted what she needed and not having them fulfilled anyway even if she had no speech and language disorder she had to learn how she learned how to be a great thief you know, how to get what she needed. She couldn't tell anybody what she needed anyway. So she learned how to steal it, go get it on her own, you know, to, to take care of her people. She's the Robin Hood of the colonies to take care of her people. And she learned stale, she learned skills, breaking and entering. And the person in my life who had the speech and language disorder as a child, before they could speak, they learned how to break all the child locks in the house on anything that they weren't supposed to know how to break at that age you know you'd walk into a room and they'd be standing there with the child lock that supposedly they weren't supposed to be able to get into for five more years and they'd look at you and smile and and hand the child lock to you because they had already broken it off a cabinet or a doorknob so harlow was this kind of child and she grew up to be somebody that knew how to look out for herself and everybody around her with skill and stealth and and ease and and had all these skills because of it, because her brain knew knew a workaround. So I I thought that would be wonderful to see what that would do. Like in the King's speech, right, he was fascinating because even though he he had this stutter, you know, he had a workaround and he learned how to succeed in spite of it. And I think we
1: need more of that in literature and movies. I was going to say, I think that portraying a heroine who has, is still dealing with it i won't say to overcome it because it's really not something you overcome something you live with and figure out how to live with it and what to do with it but for her to be able to do that and be this kick-ass heroine is fascinating and also with susan's it's like this woman is on the i don't i don't call it madness I, i feel like she's on the verge of what would look like a breakdown and she's pushing herself because she knows she doesn't have a lot of time to get this done so despite the fact that we're hearing it from her eyes and she's so frantic she does what she needs to do and so i felt like she's the heroine of her own story as well so i think it's very helpful to people who might suffer from or know people and i had no idea what Merrill's was never heard of it i taught high school but By that time, I think students had a way to cope or something else was going on. So and The Other Widow, Susan, your second book, I haven't finished reading it. So tell us a little about it.
2: Um, Well, it's told um, from the points of view of three women. The first is Dory, who's um, having an affair with her boss. They're together on an icy street in Boston. And he's just about to tell her something and he's breaking off their relationship when somebody comes at them and he overcorrects and crashes into a tree and dies, and she um he's dead. You know, there's nothing she can do, so she except save herself and her job and, and her reputation. And she's married as a child, so she takes off and as she's getting to the train station, she drops the phone in the trash. The phone is a burner phone that he gave her, and he has another, no one else has the numbers. And as she's taking off from there, she hears the phone ring. So So that's how it opens. It's from her point of view, it's from the point of view also of his widow. So thus, the other woman becomes the other widow. That's where the title comes from. And, um, and and I tried to make the a widow, you know, his wife he was cheating on, she's very different from Dory, but she's not a horrible character because these things happen. I mean, you don't have to have a horribly abusive spouse to have an affair that these things happen. so I tried not to make her a caricature. She's just sort of, I mean, wouldn't be my t- cup of tea, but she's okay. And... So it's from her point of view, she finds out then about what he's been doing. And and from the point of view of Maggie, who's the insurance investigator, who decides that this is really, was a murder instead of an accident. She actually has PTSD, to put yet another mental aberration. And she's back from Afghanistan, and she she's suffering from PTSD, which, I I found it interesting what you said, Kim, about stress, because what I have found is that stress causes so many problems later in life. I think it's at the root of so many mental illnesses, and we have different names for them, and they have slightly different facets, but I think at their core, they come from extreme stress in childhood. I love
1: the idea of three very different women, and I hope I'm not giving it away, but I love the fact that They think it's a murder because his airbag didn't deploy. And that definitely puts it into a whole different category. Your premises are so fascinating. And I know you're working. Well, actually you are have finished a manuscript. Do you have a working title or would you rather not say for the your third one? Sinners all. Yeah,
2: it's it's from a Shakespearean quote. Oh, sinners all. Okay. So so or we are sinners all and it's um that's the title the working title. I like well, that. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Share share the premise with us. 911 operator is um about to get off her shift late at night and she gets a call from a woman who says she's just awakened and her husband beside her in the bed and he's dead. And she's very upset of course and and uh, the operator says, "Well, are you okay?" And she says, "Yes." And, and the operator says, "Well, can you you know just really quietly get up and is is the carol's killer still in the house and she says no and then she says yes and the operator says well can you get up and just very quietly close the door to the bedroom but don't make any noise and she says yes and and then the operator says again is the killer still in the house and she says the killer's still in the room so the operator "Hmm." The operator has dispensed the, the two cops and she's like hurry up hurry up the killer's still in the room and one of the officers says well we're here but there's no how there's nothing here it's a vacant lot so that that's the open then so she is point of view character she is trying to unravel this as her own marriage is imploding she's trying to see why this woman who actually is in prison and she's the other point of view character trying to tell what happened leading up to this and it's she's fuzzy on what happened that night but so there, the two things are sort of coming together but the as the book progresses but the woman who is trying to figure out what happened as her own marriage is falling apart realizes that her marriage is beginning to mirror the other woman's marriage and she realizes that where she feels that what the other the way the other woman solved the problem by killing her husband doesn't seem so unreasonable so that's the sub. i love that
1: how sometimes these um, what we might take out of context as unreasonable and violent crimes but then when you kind of put it in its uh piece, put the pieces together you're like eh makes sense (laughs) you know we could yeah
2: answer marriage is just you know just
1: yeah well that sounds fascinating and we'll want to talk about that more as soon as you get get that one out and i know that your books are available just about everywhere they're in independent bookstores what do you have a favorite independent bookstore or do you
2: like them all (laughs) i like eagle eye eagle eye great and yeah that's why i had my two launches i just love them it's Indicator. But they're, they're a best. Uh, The Fox Tale is great too, but it's it's quite a ways from there. I guess that's right. I, Other that's part right. of town. Yeah, um, actually, my the books I just checked because I didn't want to give the wrong information. My webpage is um, Susan Crawford Fairly easy, Susan Crawford And if you go there, you can actually buy the books they are still available HarperCollins, Books a Million. Amazon, of course, Barnes & Noble. And uh, the only thing you can't get through my website is The Pocket Wife through HarperCollins. Everything else seems to be available there. Well, be sure to check out Susan Crawford's website. It's
1: SusanCrawfordNovelist.com. And we're going to be keeping close watch on what's going on with We Are Sinners All. We're... I is that, that Sinners All. Sinnersol. All. I, I am very eager to learn more about that. So thanks again so much for being here tonight and we have really enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. And I'm so interested in all of your work as well.
1: So that's that's very Thank kind. You have a, a wonderful rest of the week and weekend.
0: You too. Thank you. Thanks, Susan.
1: Thank you for joining us tonight. We welcome your comments and invite you to check out our Wild Women Who Write website. Until next time, keep writing and stay wild.